Let me invite you to take your Bible and uh, we're going to turn to Revelation 14. Revelation chapter 14, we're looking at uh, verses 13 through 20 this morning for exposition. You're welcome to the church Bibles if you do not own your own Bible. And if you're one of our guests this morning, we're so glad you're here. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please, uh, you can make the one in the, the chair rack in front of you. There's at least three in each row. You can make it your own. Take it. It's not stealing. Write your name in it. It's your Bible if you want it. We'd love you to have a, uh, a modern translation of the scriptures uh, at hand. So that's good for you. All right. So let's, uh, let's give our attention to God's word being read. Revelation 14, beginning in verse 13, through the end of the chapter. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, and called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Well, this is God's word. We're grateful for it. I need help. I believe you need help too. And we need to hear from the Spirit this morning. So would you join me in praying? For just that. Now, Father in heaven, as your word lies open before us, we understand that um, it is the living and active text, and uh, it, it acts on us in ways that uh, your spirit determines. And we know that uh, for anything good to happen here, uh, your spirit must do the work. Father, as a mere man, I cannot do anything of eternal and lasting value here. So I need you to speak. I pray, plant your word in our hearts and bring about the effect that you desire to conform us to the very image of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us all attentiveness of mind and readiness of heart to hear and respond in faith so that Christ himself may be glorified among us and in our individual lives. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, with September being here, kids are back in school. Now, the sweltering heat was supposed to give way to more moderate temperatures. It seems that we'll have to wait for that. But it's normal. We get how the seasons go. Those eventually will give way to some sub-zero wind chills that make us pine for the summer again, and we're all over at it again. But one of the markers that I've noticed, in particular this time of year, uh, as, as we're heading through the fall. One of the markers for the season change that I note, and I'm not talking about the dates on the calendar, but what I observe is how, is how 
once the corn gets to a place where it's tall and it turns brown, the harvesters come in and mow it all down. And I always feel just a little bit sad because, well, that means winter's coming, the fall's coming. Now, I recognize, being no farmer, that my perspective entirely misses the point. Um, the harvest is what the farm wants. To him, it's a, a good thing. He, he doesn't worry about my mood about the corn coming down. He gets to harvest. And all things being equal, it's if good seed is sown, then there should be a good harvest. Now, of course, farmers also have to contend with weeds. They have to deal with them, whether that's through herbicides or, or technology. Ultimately, the fate of those weeds, the bad seed, is that they will be destroyed. Now, why do I say that? Why that opening illustration? See, as we look at the Bible passage before us, that John has this vision. He hears a voice from heaven assuring him that there will be rest for those who die in the Lord. And part of that rest I would take is that it's to know. It's to know that everything will be made right when Christ returns. And so John, in this vision, he has this, well, it turns out it's agricultural imagery. And he's, I believe what he has shown is the final judgment. So what I want to do this morning, even as we read the text of Scripture together, I want us to listen to the Spirit through the Word to understand the significance, and here's where I'm going in the outline, to understand the significance of the reaper, to understand the significance of the grain and also the grapes. So who is the reaper? And what is the fate of both the grain and the grapes? So let's get to it this morning. First of all, the reaper. Now, when you hear the word reaper, it's entirely possible if you're like me, you might be thinking grim, because that sometimes just goes together. That's that shadowy figure in horror genre, skeletal face, deep set in a black hooded cloak carrying a sickle. You've, I'm sure you've seen it. That grim reaper has been symbolized, uh, been used as a symbol of death in, in, in Western culture, I think dating back as I looked it up to the 14th century. And I'm pretty sure that that, that image that was developed probably had some connection to this passage of Scripture. In, uh, in a song about the inevitability of death, Buck Dharma, he's the lead vocal and guitarist for Blue Oyster Cult, he had something to say about this in a song that he wrote. And he wrote that song to a friend who was dying. And now, if you can get beyond the matter of whether the song needs more cowbell or not, here's the question. It provokes the question. I think it's an important one. He says, don't fear the reaper. So do you agree or disagree? Do you fear the reaper? Well, from this passage of Scripture, what we learn is that the answer, whether you fear the reaper or not, depends on knowing who the reaper is and the nature of your relationship with him. So here's what John sees. First, he sees one like a son of man seated on a white cloud. And as I've been saying all along as we've been moving through Revelation, there's so much language taken from the prophets. And here is an illusion, more than an illusion, almost like a direct uh, takeout from, from Daniel, specifically Daniel 13. And there in Daniel, sorry, not Daniel 13, Daniel 7, 13, there, that one like a son of man, there in Daniel, that one like a son of man is shown to receive authority from God the Father in heaven. 
uh, over the nations. So he receives this authority over the nations of the earth and to rule ultimately over an everlasting kingdom. Here's what it says in Daniel 7.13. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Just notice the similarity between, between that and our text this morning. Of course, during his earthly ministry, Jesus, and no doubt referring back to Daniel, referred to himself as the Son of Man. And in Matthew uh, chapter 24, 29 through 45, Jesus there in that chapter, teaching about his own return, he revealed these things in the scriptures. That is not the page. That makes no sense at all. There it is. This will make sense. He revealed there, sorry about that, about his own return. He described himself as coming on the clouds of heaven. And that coming, in that, he would both be redeemer and judge. So coming on the clouds of heaven, Jesus in that chapter in Matthew uh, 24, he revealed that he would come to both redeem and judge. Now, he taught that same truth with different imagery. And if, if you're familiar with the parable of, of the separating the sheep from the goats, it's the same idea. Now, back to John's vision. He has this, the Son of Man has this golden crown on his head. And I would suggest that that depicts this ruling authority over his own people, but also over his enemies as well. And of course, as, as we recall reading it together, John also observes him holding this sharp sickle, really signifying that he is, he is some kind of farmer, has the expectation of, of reaping a harvest. Reaping a harvest. Now, I take it here that what John sees in this, this vision, really, is ultimately a depiction of the end of the age when Christ promised to return. He has the honor. He has the authority. He has the eternal right to judge the souls of men. So, as we think about, well, what do we do with this this morning? I'll come back to the question. I mean, he's depicted here as the reaper. Do you fear him, or do you look forward to his return? And like I said, it all depends on your relationship with him. Just reinforcing this, and the, the apostles backed this up this idea of both redeemer and judge. Um, preaching to Cornelius. This is Peter in the, book of, in the book of Acts, in chapter 10. Peter was preaching to Cornelius and his entire household. This is what Peter said to him. Here's how he testified about Jesus. He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, I take it here that, that Cornelius was likely a God-fearer, though a Gentile. He had some knowledge of the scriptures. So, if I may paraphrase what Peter was saying, he said, look, this Jesus was the one, yes, he's, he's, he's the one who's judging the living, who will judge the living and the dead. He is the one who was prophesied in the scripture, all the way back to Genesis 3.15. So, I would take it that Peter's saying, look, if we pay attention to the scriptures, we see that God did not spring this on his people. This wasn't a surprise that he was going to come back to judge. He had laid out this, this groundwork for centuries. And he revealed these things in the scriptures to enable you, Peter saying to Cornelius, 
and, and really to us today. He, he revealed these things in the scriptures to enable you to stand one day before the Son of God as judge on the final day. He would enable you to do that because he put your sin on himself. The Father in heaven took your sin, if you have trusted in Christ, and put that on the Son of God. So Jesus' first advent, if you will, was not initially a ministry of condemnation. One of the most memorized verses in the Bible, John 3.16. This is what follows it. Listen. John 3.17 and 18. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But here's the dividing line. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Friends, every, everyone has some kind of relationship with God. Everyone does, whether they know it or not. That relationship is one either a friend or enemy. An enemy has no regard for the Son of God. A friend loves the Son of God and looks forward to his return. So which are you? Which are you? Are you a friend or an enemy? You know, you may, you may be thinking you're neutral. Well, we can't be ambivalent about this at all. You're here, and that's, that's a good thing. But listen, this happens in every church. And I don't know your heart, so I'm just generalizing here. Do not fake it. Do not fake it for the sake of looking good to the people around you. There are so many people who are attached to churches, but they do not recognize who Jesus for who he is. They do not recognize him for who he is as the son of God. So let me urge you, do not go through the motions. Don't have a merely external religion. We see this passage of scripture. I want you to see Jesus in his glory. I want you to acknowledge, this is what the word of God is calling us to, acknowledge his authority over all creation, to bow before him, to surrender to him, and call him Savior. And if you do call him Savior, know this, that it means he is also Lord of all and Lord over you. There's no middle ground. Jesus said it this way, if anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For I would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If you're a believer in Jesus, don't fear the reaper. So what's the reaper reaping? Well, first there's the grain. Now, we all get it, I think. Uh, there's enough of this going on around us. Um, I was pretty much raised in city life, so, but moving here to Nebraska, I've been able to observe some things, and I'm very impressed by it. But efficient modern farming is, a, is an amazing thing to me. And, and I don't know how recently they've had this stuff, but these massive harvesters guided by GPS, they can crisscross an entire section of land. Well, this may be stretching it, but while the farmer naps inside the cab, I don't know if it's that advanced, but I know the GPS just tracks that thing along, right? But you think about that. In Bible times, though, harvesting 
was a laborious task. And the harvesting was done as it regarded grain with this curved blade attached to a wooden handle, looking something like a question mark, I guess. And it really was the best tool for cutting down that standing grain so that it could be bundled up in sheaves. In this first reaping that we see in the text, the kind of harvest I'm admitting to you up front is not mentioned. It doesn't say grain, but I take it that grain is implied, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But looking at verse 15, John sees that an angel from the temple in heaven, symbolic, okay, it's imagery, an angel from the temple in heaven calls out to the Son of Man to begin reaping. And I, if, if you're reading this, and like, like me, it might beg the question for you, why is an angel commanding the Son of God? If indeed the Son of Man is, in, is the Son of God. Well, thinking about it, and of course reading up on it, and seeing what others had to say about it, helped me. The angel's not there on his own authority. Rather, what he's what he is, is he's a messenger from the temple. And that's metaphorically really where, the, where God the Father dwells. So it would seem in this picture that it's the command of the Father mediated, brought to the Son of Man, brought to Christ through this angel. And what this shows, and it's just a picture of the submission of the Son of God to the Father. And it's in fact something Jesus spoke about in his earthly ministry. He said this in John 5, 36. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Sending, given. In a sense, Jesus is saying, what will you have me to do, Father? Now, I don't want to get into all the theology between the relationship and the Father and the Son. That, that's certainly the matter of the, the, the Trinity is... is it, well, there's much to be derived from the Bible. Well, we're not going to solve that. But at least in the relationship to the earthly ministry of Jesus, there was a sense of Jesus as the Son of God receiving from the Father what to do specifically. And further, that the Son needed to know from the Father when to begin reaping. I believe this is also an agreement. If, indeed, as I take it to be, that this really is, a, is, a, is the end, Right? Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, is, is ultimately taking the instruction from the Father when to be in, uh, begin the reaping. And this is what Jesus said in the, the, the Olivet Discourse. Now, if you read there in Matthew, or Mark, this, this one in Mark 13, Jesus was speaking about the judgment, the day of the Lord, the judgment that was going to come upon Jerusalem and destroy it. That happened in 70 AD. But he also spoke of, of the future when when he'd come back. And this, he says this to his disciples. But concerning that day or that hour. To get in the way of anybody who might be about date setting. Okay. No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven. Nor the son. But only the father. The son doesn't know when he's going to begin reaping. So the father tells the angel. Tell the Son it's time. The Father is the one who sets that time. Just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he said something similar, responding to the disciples and their, their question about when the kingdom of God would be fulfilled. He said this, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, some take it that these two reapings here are really parallel judgments. I, I do not see them that way. I see actually that this first reaping 
that it's implied grain is ultimately the heart of great power and glory, sending out his angels with a loud trumpet call, gathering his elect from the four winds. That's Matthew 24. These are the ones whose names had been written in the book of life, chapter 13, verse 8. So the reason I take it to be a grain harvest is that Jesus often used that imagery. Well, at least he uses it once. He used that imagery in one of his parables about the kingdom. And listen to this. The kingdom of God is, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. This imagery that Jesus used in the, par in the parable, I, I think, I take it that, that this is part of what John is seeing here. So this rape, rape, ripe grain harvest, these are the citizens of the kingdom of God. And the Son of Man here is shown doing this reaping because they have been specifically given to him by his Father. He's doing what the Father has given to him. And so the reaping commences because it's ripe. And I take it that this ripeness is, the, is really indicative of the, the total number of souls that the Father has elected from eternity past. These have come to faith in Christ. This is what Jesus said in the wilderness after he had fed the 5,000. Listen to these words. All that the Father gives me, he's talking about people, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father has, all that the Father gives me. So in fact, there's this list, the book of life. They will come to me. And whoever comes to me will not be cast out. And when they all do come to him, it's ripe. And with a swing of the sickle, the earth was harvested. Verse 16. And the grain, or as it says back in chapter 14, verse 4, the first fruits of God, the ones that have been redeemed from mankind, they're brought in the, into the eternal storehouse of God. Now, take a little time for some self-reflection here. How do you know if you'll be in the grain harvest? How do you know you will be numbered among the elect? I'll take you back to verse 13b. We started this. After the angel announces the blessing on those who die in the Lord, the Spirit agrees and says this. He says, blessed are those who die in the Lord. The Spirit agrees and says, yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor for their deeds follow them. Their deeds follow them. The ones who rest from their labor, the ones who get relief from living this metaphorical Babylon, they're the ones whose deeds will follow them. And it's not stated here, but I take it based on other parts of the scripture that the Spirit is saying that their faith in Christ was proved in good works, in genuine repentance for sin, in loving God, heart, soul, and straight, strength, truly loving neighbor as self, seeking to imitate Christ in character. Not perfected, that would be not possible in this life, but certainly on a trajectory of progressively learning to live a life set apart from Babylon and, and the, the beastly values. And this is possible, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is possible for you because of God's grace. 
that same power to mark you as a child of God is the same power which is at work within you. God's grace to save you is also his grace to conform you to the image of Christ. I love this in Titus. Um, chapter 2, 11 through 14. Stating what has been accomplished in Christ. Really the, the effect of the gospel. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God's grace. Jesus died. For your sins, he rose again. He assures you of eternal life if you trust him. God's grace has appeared. Brings salvation. It marks you for eternity. Then, then he continues in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, people whose deeds follow them, the blessed in the Lord, the ones who die in Christ. That's possible, brothers and sisters. And we look at our lives, think, why? Why do I not measure up? And maybe right now you're in a trajectory where, where you just see this, you believe Jesus is Savior, you, but you don't behave like he's Lord. But I want to encourage you, if you're truly in Christ, the same grace that marked you, the same grace of God that visited you when, when, when the Spirit opened your eyes to see Jesus Christ and him crucified, that same gospel message teaches us to say no to ungodliness and those worldly passions. It teaches us and trains us to live uprightly in this world as we wait, as we look forward to the day of Christ's appearing when he will reap and bring us into his storehouse. Now, I take it that much of John's vision and revelation describes things that will soon take place, even as he says at the beginning, in the beginning of, of, of Revelation. And these, for us, most things have been happening, I take it, in the world since Jesus was raised from the grave and ascended to heaven. But this, this part of the vision, that was future to John, and it is yet future to us. Christ has not returned as yet. But, be assured of this, he will return. He will return to harvest. And so we need not fear the reaper. It will be a glorious day of ingathering for the whole people of God. But until that day, we've got to take the exhortation. Until that day, that exhortation back in verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is what we are to do, brothers and sisters, as we live in this metaphorical Babylon with, with the beastly influence all around us. Seek to live for Christ set apart, pursuing holiness, having his word on our minds and on our lips and in our hearts. And so we endure. We're called to endure. Well, finally, that second reaping are the grapes. And we'll look at that. Now, the Bible's massive influence on Western literature is undeniable. So it's no surprise that, that people who may be unfamiliar with the Bible 
unfamiliar with its sayings, its metaphors, they would understand that the crushing of grapes is ultimately a picture of divine judgment. Maybe in a previous generation, maybe not presently, but think of John Steinbeck's novel, Grapes of Wrath, that comes to mind. It's not hard to make that mental connection, right? The shedding of blood and the wine made from crushing grapes. That's that obvious connection. And, and it was obvious to the disciples who, when Jesus at the Last Supper took a cup of wine and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. They had been steeped in the law where the blood of the animals sacrificed at the temple would, a, would be a, an atonement of sorts for their sin. A temporary one to be sure. So that picture of grapes crushed and blood it's not lost on most people. Now, turning again to John's vision, he, he sees now another angel coming from the temple in heaven. This angel also has a sharp sickle. So there's that angel. But then there's another angel, and I think this is perhaps the same one who reported to the Son of Man to begin the first harvest. He now instructs this, this angel with the sickle to gather the grapes. This angel had charge of the fire from the altar in heaven. And this is where the, the imagery starts to get piled on. Verse 18 says he had charge of the fire from heaven. And that brings us back to the opening of the seventh seal in chapter 8, which I also take to be depicting the final judgment. There it says, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. Well, the angel tells the one with the sickle now to swing it and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. <clears throat> now, I, I know nothing about winemaking. I have a friend who's quite skilled at it uh, visiting with us this weekend. But I'm quite sure if you pick grapes too early, the wine won't be good. Wine is good, but what's in view here is the idea of crushing them, Okay. Again, showing how John's vision is soaked with this prophetic imagery. And Isaiah, judgment upon Edom is depicted there. And this is what the Lord says. Again, John's vision borrowing from the prophets. Isaiah 6.3, I've trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel judgment language. This, is, this shows up again in Joel where the Lord pronounces judgment on Tyre and Sidon. There he I put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the wine press is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. Now, you might wonder as I did, why is the angel doing the reaping and not the son of man from his perch on the clouds? That was a question I had. So, why is that? <clears throat> Why is there a different way of, of, of reaping? That's not clear to me from the text, but I, I want to do a little sanctified speculation, if you'll allow me. The grain represents those who are precious to the Lord, the ones for whom he poured out his own blood, the ones for whom he was crushed. So he takes them, personally takes them to himself. He gathers them to himself. It's what Jesus promised his disciples, and this promise is for us. Promised him in John 14, he said, I will come again and take you to myself, 
that where I am, you may be also. It's very personal. It's very relational. Again, these are the ones for whom he personally bore the wrath of God as a substitution. And just think of the words of Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He was crushed so that we would not have to be. So that our blood would not have to run with the, with the grapes of the harvest or experience the grapes of wrath, if it were, as it were. Well, these having, these grapes, having rejected the offer of a propitiating, wrath-averting sacrifice in Christ, crushed with the full fury of the wrath of the Lamb on symbolic grapes, this is executed, I would suggest, judicially, even, in a sense, impersonally, to show that while the offense against God is personal, our sin, justice is objective. That's my speculation here, but it makes sense. And this judicial wine press is sitting outside the city. The city, perhaps it's Zion, that, that place that represents the place where God dwells with his people. The unrighteous are not there. It's outside of the city that that's where the wine press is. And the image of this blood, it, it's, it's an unimaginable image. I mean, it, well, we're imagining it, but we're, we're just how could this be? Blood, horse, bridle, deep, 1,600 stadia. That's 184 miles, says the note. It's a figurative ocean of blood from the slain, representing both the totality of evil on, worth, on the earth as well as its immensity. That's a lot of blood. And it's an ominous, ominous scene. Jesus as wrathful reaper. Again, judicially bringing down the, the due and just punishment on all those who are his enemies. I, it's sad. It's sad, especially in this day and age, how many people have crafted an image of Jesus in their mind that limits him, limits him to healer, teacher, and tragic hero. Judge is certainly not a popular way to think of Jesus. And this, we get excited, and I'm not questioning the, the faith of these people, but we get excited when famous people, maybe people in professional sports or artists in music or movies, and they testify maybe about their own faith in Jesus. I've seen a few of these lately. And they talk about Jesus helping them accomplish their goals. They, they talk about Jesus giving them a higher purpose in life. They talk about Jesus helping them turn away from addiction or learning to love others. Good things, to be sure. But rarely, if ever, rarely do we hear anybody describe what John so vividly describes in his vision. We have lost the idea of a judging son of God. If Bach Dharma from Blue Oyster Cult knew the truth, then he might have written a song to his friend, You Should Fear the Reaper. If you don't know Christ, fear the reaper. And I'm guilty of this too. Perhaps in our evangelistic efforts, I wonder sometimes if we're only telling part of the story. Christ is indeed at the same time our greatest hope, but he could be your worst nightmare. 
John the baptizer in introducing him, he understood the, the good news of the gospel because it's a genuine rescue from the bad news. See, receiving Jesus as Savior, it's like, it's like, well, your life's okay, but it could be really much better. No, Jesus as Savior is Savior from condemnation. Jesus wants you to save Jesus wants to save you from himself. And he's given all of this time until he returns to see him as Savior, to bow to him as Lord, so that when that day comes and you have, you will delight in his return. But if in all that time and all over all those centuries, People refuse to turn to him. He will come back as judge. John said this, the baptizer. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. That's good. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I'm trusting that most of you are in Christ this morning. I'd like to believe that. If you're watching today on the live stream or if, or if you pick up this video at some point in the future, Jesus will return to judge. And if you've not bowed the knee in joy, in expectation, in trust, you will bow the knee in horror. I realize this sounds all fire and brimstone-y, but this is what we see here in Revelation. This is what John is being shown. This is from Jesus to John. Write this down. Well, that day of harvest, maybe the next day, a year, several years, several generations, we don't know. But notice, Christ the reaper will return and he'll gather his own to himself and he will judge his enemies. So brothers and sisters in Christ, we're all going to stand before him who will judge the living and the dead. All of us will. And for all who have loved and longed for his day of appearing, it will not be terror, but it will be absolute joy. It will be the vindication of everything that we've held on to and perhaps you've suffered for because you held on to Christ in the midst of this metaphorical Babylon. And you will know that vindication as Christ brings you home to be with him. But let me just make sure it's crystal clear. If you have trusted Christ, if you believe that he is the son of God who took on a human body, if you have trusted that his death on the cross 2,000 years ago satisfied God's wrath for you, if you believe that he was raised on the third day, if you believe all of that, then you can stand before him in absolute confidence because in his great love he bought you, he redeemed you with his own blood and so like him you will be raised from death and gathered with him to enjoy him forever. This is our hope, brothers and sisters and I pray that this hope will sustain you so that you may endure with joy. Let's pray. Father, it's an unpleasant picture to see your son whom we so often sing about as 
gentle Jesus, meek and mild, wielding, or at least having your angel instruct that the grapes of your wrath will crush the unrighteous and unbelieving and final judgment will happen. That's a warning for us, Father, for any among us who may be sort of going through the motions and externally religious, but inside their hearts, they're far from you. Father, I pray even now, by your Spirit, save. Open their eyes. And for all of us, Father, who long for the day of appearing of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus, I pray, keep us faithful. Help us to stand. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us to do that, Father, so that that day when he returns, whether we're called up from the grave or, or standing here, Father, either way, we'll welcome him as King of kings and Lord of lords to rule and reign over us forever. Keep us faithful to that day. For Jesus' sake, amen.